Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I would encourage you, please, to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6. If you're looking in your worship guide today, you see that today's sermon covers Exodus 6 through Exodus 11. So I hope you brought your lunch. I'm kidding. As you're turning to Exodus chapter 6, however, I do want to welcome into this conversation those who are the rest of our church family, uh, worshiping in the Family Life Center right now to turn in your Bibles as well, or those who are tuning in online and, and keeping up with us through our website. I encourage you to join us in this worship service as well. So today you know that we are now in the fifth week of our ongoing study in the book of Exodus. And in our examination of Exodus, we have already determined that in the first 15 chapters of this book, the first 15 chapters are all devoted to getting out of Dodge. They're all devoted to liberating the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And last week in the journey that we've been making thus far, last week we saw Moses after he had already mustered the courage in God to become the mouthpiece of God. We see Moses go to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. We want to worship in the wilderness. All we need is three days Pharaoh knew, as we observed last week, what happens when people worship. <laughs> See, worship is a dangerous enterprise because when people worship, you enter into kind of a, a realm in which you are able to imagine an existence in this world that is different than it currently is. And you leave worship to make that world a better version of that existence that God had in mind. And so Pharaoh hears Moses say, we just need some time to worship. Who could be against that? And Pharaoh says, no, I know what you're up to. The answer is no. He not only refused their reprieve, but he doubled down on their oppression. He made it even more difficult, the tasks, the work, the labor. And at the end of last week, we left Moses with this, this painful recognition that maybe God abandoned me altogether. And we groaned with him a little bit because we recognize what it feels like sometimes to not hear the voice of God when you need it the most. And we wondered last week, if God is silent, does that mean that God is absent? Today's text is an answer to that question. We begin in chapter 6, verse 1, and we pick up the story with these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, with a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they reside as aliens. I've also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a a land that, that I swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Well, Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. What happens when help is on the way and you don't know the sound of the siren? What happens when you have been groaning, aching, heartbreaking in the midst of your ordeal, your, your enslavement to something for so long and in such a deep way that you have now become desensitized to recognize help when it's on its way? What happens when you have suffered long enough that you've become used to the suffering and now you can no longer even entertain the possibility that your life could look any different? See, we're about to read a portion of the text that has the plagues of Egypt. The ten plagues, and we know the ten plagues of Egypt. We know what they are. We know that among the ten there are, well, there's blood in the Nile. The Nile turns to blood. We know that there's frogs and gnats and flies and pestilence. We know that there are boils on the skin and hail that falls from the sky and turns to fire. And we know there are locusts that come in great swarms and that darkness will cover the land. And we know that final tragic one where the firstborn of all the Egyptians dies. We know these plagues, but do you know that typically when we interpret these plagues, we interpret them as, as punishment upon Egypt and, and rightly so. It is judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt, but don't forget, this text ends with the reminder that the Hebrews were so broken in spirit that they could not even, they could not even hear the possibility or entertain or imagine the possibility that their lives could look any better than they do. So I'm making the case today, as others have made before me and as the text proclaims before us that the plagues of Egypt were just as much for the Hebrews to believe as they were for Pharaoh to receive. Today, I want to talk to you about baby elephants, scrub buckets, and new suns rising baby elephants 
scrub buckets and new suns rising. Will you pray with me? God, in this moment of study in which the, the, the scriptures are opened up before us, we recognize that unless we are opened up, it's just ink on paper. But with your spirit in this room, awakening us to some new thing you're attempting to do in us, with your presence and your help, these words in sacred scripture become more than just words. They become transforming truths. So we open up our minds and we open up our hearts and we receive what it is that you have to speak to us. So I pray that you would make this moment that we share far more than just the words of one man to speak to all of us. O word of life. Amen. Baby elephants. You know, there are no real elephants that much in circuses anymore. There are a few, but circuses, for the most part, are not using elephants. Ringling Brothers dropped the whole act altogether, right? In fact, even went out of business itself. It just shut it down. And there are a number of reasons why that's the case. But what's fascinating to me is back when elephants had kind of the headline of the, of the show. When, when elephants were in the circus, they did some pretty amazing things. You could get an elephant to balance on a ball, stand up on back feet, blow his trunk on command. Pretty amazing. But what's most intriguing to me is the training regiment of the early young elephant. When the elephant is born, they are usually separated from their mother at some point when it's safe to do so. And they are usually tethered around the neck with a rope to some stake or some pole that, that won't move. Or to, to, to put it a different way, there, there's, a, there's a shackle that's put around their ankle and it's, it's chained to a stake in the ground that won't move. And the, the elephant will try to move. It'll try, it's a herd animal, so it'll try to get back with it. And yet, no matter where it moves, no matter how it tugs and pulls and resists its own anchoring, it can't. And so it tries for days and weeks and months to keep pulling away from the rope that tethers it to the pole or the chain that has anchored it to the stake. But it, it can't move and in time just learns what's the use and eventually stops trying. In fact, it stops trying to the extent that you know what you could do and you know what they did was well, they would then just put a light, loose-fitting rope around the neck, not tethered to anything. Or a loose shackle around the ankle, not chained to any stake, and yet the, the elephant would just stay put and not move because it had lost the capacity to think that it could. In the same way, some fish do the same thing, the wall-eyed pike. You could put a wall-eyed pike in a glass bowl. And you could put a glass partition between in the middle of the bowl. And on the other side of the glass partition, you could put some minnows, which the wall-eyed pike loves to munch on. And, and the wall-eyed pike would see the minnows and try to eat it and keep banging its head up against the, that clear glass separation until eventually the head hurt enough where it didn't want to do that anymore. And it stopped. Then you could take the separation out, take the, the glass partition out, and the fish could be swimming all around the walleye pike, and the walleye pike wouldn't even try to eat anymore because it had lost the capacity to imagine that it could. 
for the Hebrews. For 430 years, the empire had robbed their imagination that there was more to life than brick making. For 430 years, they were the faceless, nameless pawns in the hands of Pharaoh. And all they could do day and night was the mind-numbing and back-breaking work of making bricks to support the enterprise of the control mechanism that we call Egypt. I mean, sure, they had stories. I mean, they had stories to tell. They had old stories, like four centuries ago stories, stories about patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and stories about a, a covenant, a promise, about a land in which they would live and life that would be abundant and free. They had those stories, but they don't tell those stories four centuries later because who cares? Who cares? What difference does it even possibly make? And we get a, we get a kind of um, a taste of that kind of bitterness in verse 8 and 9 that we read just a moment ago. I will bring you into a land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember them? Now, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses. And then maybe the most tragic line. Because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery, they, had lost, they were tethered so long to the chain. And they had lived so long on one side of the partition that they just couldn't, who cares? Now the word that's used there is very interesting. The Hebrew word for, for broken spirit there is mikotzer uh, ruach. Mikotzer ruach literally means Broken spirit, or literally, lost breath. Do you remember Ruach? Ruach is the word that first emerged in chapter 2 of Genesis when God created the first human and leaned over and breathed into the human the Ruach, the breath of God, the life, the animating power of God. In fact, we have said all along for several weeks now, that the Ruach of God is that thing that's breathed into you when you were born, and it's what gives you a part of the life of God. It's what makes us able to say and tell the truth when we say we are created in the image of God because God's own breath is in us. The Hebrews had lost their breath. Do you know there is a kind of suffering and there is a kind of enslavement that is so severe that it can make you lose the capacity to recognize the image of God that is in you. There is a kind of bondage that can cause you to lose sight of the image that is in you. And when that happens, that is so dangerous. When we lose the ability to imagine that there is more to life than the thing that's around us, that is dangerous when we lose our imagination. Walter Brueggemann said that imagination is the human capacity to host and embrace a world that is different than the world right in front of us. Imagination is the capacity to host and embrace a world that is different than the one that is right in front of us. In other words, the imagination is what allows us to see where, where life has brought us and, and what life looks like and at the same time recognize there is more going on than what we see and when we lose our imaginations we are in trouble and for 430 years 
the imperial power of Pharaoh and Egypt had gradually dominated the imaginations of the Hebrews. They dominated the imaginative capacity of the Hebrews with all of the schemes and mechanisms of empire. Violence, domination, control, intimidation, subjugation. Everywhere they looked, in fact. Everywhere they looked, things were emerging from the ground. Pyramids and big sculptures that were 30 and 50 feet tall to remind them that they are living in a world that will not be overrun, that will not be overtaken, so don't get any bright ideas. You live in that world long enough, and your capacity to imagine another world, well, it becomes chained to the ground, right? But the trouble is that Moses is about to take them on a field trip. Moses wants to take them out of Egypt to go worship. But you can't worship if your imagination is tethered to the ground. You can't worship if... if you are unable to imagine a world different than the world that you're living in. So something would have to happen. I mean, something big, like ten times. Something big would have to happen to dismantle the world in which they were living so that there would be room in their imagination to envision the possibility that there is one who has more sovereignty and power and authority than Pharaoh or empire or Egypt. Something would have to clean their mind that had been polluted by the lie of Pharaoh. Which leads us to scrub buckets. To scrub buckets. So now, here they are, their, their imaginations oh, enslaved. Because, yeah, they can be set free, but, but if you get set free, I mean, Pharaoh could have said, Pharaoh could have said, Oh, you need three days? Sure, have a good trip. See you in three. But if he had let them go on day one, they would have been physically free. But if you're not mentally, emotionally, spiritually, theologically free, then it doesn't matter that you're not physically free. So something would have to scrub clean their capacity to think about themselves and God and the world in which they live. And I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. So it's in his book, um, Christ plays in 10,000 places. It is a book you need to pick up and read. Christ plays in 10,000 places, and in one place he talks about the plagues of Egypt, and this is what he says. In, if their imaginations were not thoroughly cleansed from the evil they were immersed in, they would end up doing the same thing as soon as they were in power themselves. Oppressing the weak, trampling on the helpless, bullying those under them with might and size in the name of whatever gods there were. That is where the plagues come in. The ten plagues were employed to expose the emptiness of evil, to purge the Hebrew minds of all envious admiration of evil, to systematically demolish every god illusion or god pretension that evil uses to exercise power over men and women. And then the best, the best sentence I have read in ages. Each of the ten plagues was an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds for just such a cleansing. Have you ever in your life 
an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds. So yeah, on the one hand, the plagues were to render punishment upon Egypt, but even more so, it was to demonstrate to the Hebrews something that they could not live with if they didn't see it happen. The plagues would become an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds to free their imaginations to imagine a God who was even more powerful than Pharaoh. We all need an ammonia-laced bucket of suds. A scrub bucket meant to, to scrub clean all of our, our temptations to think that our salvation comes from anything outside the love of God. And now most of the time you and I would agree that we're not involved in some kind of a imperial power like Egypt overtaking us but the truth is the imperial power that takes over most of our lives is this 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 oh, this god lie this lie that somehow our success is god our money is god our materialism is god winning is god achieving climbing contending comparing that all those things are somehow god and 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 you and I would never actually confess it out loud. We wouldn't say, we wouldn't say that those things save, but we can sometimes behave as if they do. I mean, there is a great line that we always use, and that is when it comes to salvation, there is no other name given by which human beings are saved. It's the name of the Lord our God, Jesus Christ. And most of us, if I gathered a hundred of us, and most of us in that hundred number of hundred, we would agree that it is Jesus Christ who saves and there is no other name, but do we, do we behave in that way? Because I can say it theologically. I can say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's Jesus who saves and, and no other religion, no other people group, no other whatever. But have I erected certain structures around my life in which I put confidence? See, sometimes... I think that we are enslaved by an imperial power that we don't see. This is why we don't give to the church. This is why, you say, what in the world are you talking about? This is why we have a hard time getting people to give financially to the church. Because we will say theologically, oh, the Lord is the only way of salvation. is he, the grace of Christ. And, and that's absolutely true. Hear me say that, by the way. But then at the same time, we say, I, but I don't give anything. I mean, like anything to the church because I really need that. Because over here, this gives me confidence. And although Jesus saves me, this is what sustains me. My capacity to pay for this and play with that and go here. And, or in the same way, we may not say that our participation in particular organizations or clubs or social groups or networks saves us. We will say, oh, there's no other name by which a person can be saved. Jesus. It's all Jesus. But then we will only come to church on a Sunday morning like once or twice a month because we are certain that if we miss this thing that happens at the same time, if we miss that too many times, well, I won't be sustained. There's something will fall apart in the way that I do life and, and I'll be rejected and I'll... See, there are other empires besides the ones named Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. These are empires that are hard to see, but they are just as enslaving. And I just, I, and I love you. So if, if it offends you, 
that I'm talking this way about worshiping our finances or worshiping our extracurricular activities. If you're offended this morning, I want to say this in the most pastoral way possible. Tough. <laughs> Come on. Because we all need an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds from time to time to cleanse us from the God illusion that we need anything outside the love of Jesus Christ. And if I can be one suds in that bucket, I will this morning, because we all need cleansing. Because if we don't, we will be chained to this mistake that won't let us move, and we will just assume, well, maybe we're not supposed to move. So yeah, we're all baby elephants from time to time. And we all need an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds. And you know why? Because there are new suns rising. There are new suns rising. So at the, at the end of 10 plagues, and by the way, let's go back and talk about the plagues for a minute because you know what's most sinister about the plagues? You know what's most beautiful about the plagues is this. There are 10 of them. And I'm giving my graphics guy time to catch up where I went right past it a minute ago. There are ten plagues. You know why there are ten plagues? Because ten is a whole number. And the whole number represents everything. And so there needed to be a dismantling in the Hebrew mind of everything that had held their imaginations captive. And so we go through these. But it's interesting because when you go through the ten plagues, it's not just random plagues. They're plagues that had a corresponding Egyptian god or goddess in which when the plague came, it was basically dethroning that particular god or goddess. For example, the first plague of turning the Nile into blood was a dethronement of Hapi, the god of the Nile, because when the blood, Nile turns the blood, everything dies, and the, the, the water source is useless. So thanks, Hapi, um, We've eliminated your position. The plague number two comes, and it's frogs, and, and it dethrones Heket, the, the goddess of fertility. So frogs come everywhere, but then when they die, they stink up the place. Thank you, goddess, but your reign stinks. The third plague comes, and it's gnats. Uh, Gib, the god of the dust, see, the, they take the stake or they take the rod and they hit the ground and there's a dust cloud that forms and we're told in scripture that it becomes this, this billowing dust cloud of gnats or in some places it's mosquitoes in other places it's lice. As if to say that his reign is over. The next plague is Kepri, the god of rebirth. The God of rebirth is to address uh, the flies that had come to town. In other words, he couldn't stop them. He couldn't start it. He actually is the one depicted. I think there's a picture here. Yeah, with a, with a picture, a head of a fly. And here is this swarm of flies that he didn't call and he can't call off. Next plague was the pestilence. And Hathor, the goddess of love and protection, Hathor sometimes is depicted with the head of a cow, by the way, because with the pestilence, all the cattle died, and she couldn't stop it. She was the goddess of love and protection, and she couldn't protect them, so her throne was now useless. The next one, boils. Isis, the, the goddess of medicine, couldn't heal every person in Egypt who was um, breaking out in, in boils. 
The next is hail. And Newt, the, the goddess of the sky, couldn't stop the hail from falling, couldn't start it, and the hail would fall and turn into to fire. The next was locust. Seth, the god of the storms, didn't call this storm and can't call off this storm. He was the first meteorologist. <laughs> can't predict. I can't get it right. The, last, the next to last one is darkness. Now, this is getting more serious because Ra, the god of the sun, well, darkness covers the, the whole land. And, and Ra, when you are the god of the sun and the sun burns out, your term has ended. And finally, the most tragic was the death of the firstborn of all throughout Egypt, all the Egyptians, which was an attack of Pharaoh, his own son and heir to his throne, the most powerful in Egypt. And with each one, it's like, like a, a wrecking ball. Boom. Plague number one. Boom. Plague number two. Boom. And with each Wrecking ball, says Eugene Peterson. There is this uh, dismantling of the infrastructure that had held their captivity, held their imaginations captive for so long, bit by bit, falling completely apart. But there was a new sun rising. So now at the end of 10 plagues in which everything had fallen apart, and now there was room in their mind and heart and theological imagination to entertain the possibility of a, of a God even more powerful than this. Now that there was room for them to imagine being free, they see a new sun rise. So, in, on July the 31st, 1838, uh, a man by the name of Will, you know Will, Will Nibs, Will Nibs gathered 10,000 Jamaican slaves and gathered them together for a party, a worship celebration, because on the next morning it would be the first day of freedom. The British Empire had issued an emancipation pluck. They had set all the slaves free. <laughs> and... So the night before, they had a party, and they sang, and they danced, and they worshipped. And when this, this, the clock began to strike midnight, William cried out with a loud voice, The monster is dying, the monster of slavery. The monster is dying. And then gong, 12 gongs. And with each gong, the entire crowd of, of slaves who would soon to be former slaves would cry out, The monster is dying, gong. The monster is dying, gong. And at the twelfth and final gong, they brought forth a giant coffin that they had made, a massive coffin, a casket, in which they placed every kind of item that they could think of that symbolized their slavery, whips and chains and shackles and slave clothes. And they, they put it in that large coffin. And when the, the, the bell struck midnight, they cried out with a loud voice, the monster is dead. And they buried the coffin filled with all the images of their incarcerated imagination, the symbols that reminded them of who they, who they had been and where they had been. For some, they stayed up all night long. It's kind of like prom around here. They stayed up all night long because they wanted to go to the highest 
peek on the island and look out and be the first to see the sun rise on their new and brand new existence as free people. It's a beautiful story, but it has kind of a a sour turn to it because even though 10,000 gathered and celebrated and sang until they were hoarse, there were some in remote villages whose slave masters were cruel and did not share the news and did not pass on the, the gospel that they had been set free, which, which is a reminder to us that you can be set free and not really be free. That there's a difference between being set free and being free. The Hebrews now had been set free. They were going to now enter into this journey of freedom, but they were not finished yet. See, when we're set free, there is still sometimes the residue of old things that still need to be scrubbed clean. There's still the work of salvation. The New Testament speaks about in John chapter 8, when the Son sets you free, well, then you are, you are free indeed. When you, when you trust in Jesus Christ and confess your sins and he forgives you and you're set free from the bondage, the yoke of your own slavery, well, then when he sets you free, you are free indeed. But the New Testament also speaks, especially in Pauline literature. Paul speaks of not only that we are saved, but that we are being saved. Yes, the atoning work of the cross was enough for all people, for all time, for all sin. But even though we have been set free, there is work to be done within us that never ends. I was having lunch Friday with a new friend of mine, um, Rabbi Jordan Ottenstein. He is the, uh, the rabbi at the, uh, the congregation Dor Tamid here in Alpharetta. And we were talking like clergy do and I said so you, you've got a service tonight you're preaching tonight mm-hmm. what you preaching and he told me he asked me what about you and I told him on Sunday this is what I'm wanting to say but I'm, I'm in the Old Testament so I'd welcome any feedback you have you know with the thing there and and I, I told him what I was going to say and I said what I want to tell my people what I want to tell them is that the plagues yes they were punishment over Egypt but I want to tell them that it's really for the Hebrews to see that this God is serious And that God is starting something that they can really trust. In other words, what I've been saying for the last 20 minutes or so. And he said, that's good. He said, but you know what happens next, right? I said, yeah, yeah, 40 days in the wilderness and Mount Sinai and all the wonders and the miracles. He said, yeah, but not until their baptism. Hang on a minute. Baptism. And he... He said, yeah, 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 the baptism, the Red Sea, that's baptism. They walk through the waters. But it's not just that they walk through the waters, they walk through the waters and they look around and they see Egypt and the armies and the the soldiers of Pharaoh being swallowed up in the waters. And they see engulfed in water and turmoil in watery chaos, which is a Genesis image. He sees them engulfed in watery chaos, all vestiges of their old identity. Now they've been scrubbed clean. And now they can begin the journey of liberation. And I just, 
I just want to tell you all that today. And why am I talking about this? Because the truth is you could be here in this room or in the Family Life Center or you could be at home tuning in because you're, you're in this conversation with us. And it, it might be that you're aware of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, but it may be that you struggle because it's like if, if I've been saved, why is it that I struggle with this thing still? And why is it that I still feel kind of unfinished? Why is it that I, I still have these kind of shadows or, or these, these dark places that I go through because I'm supposed to be saved, right? And I'm saying this to you because our ancient sisters and brothers of the faith, all the way up until those who are sitting next to you and, and all around you, we have the same struggle. We have been set free. But the work of being made free is a lifetime journey. You're not alone. You're right where you're supposed to be. And God is doing what God is supposed to be doing. Making us clean. This is the good news. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, we are grateful to you today, but we want to confess something to you. With our whole heart, we mean this, that, that, that there are times when we are just baby elephants tethered by chain to a stake that keeps us where we always thought that we would be. We, we are tethered. We are paralyzed. There are seasons when we have assumed that we can no longer imagine more than what we have. There are things that keep us enslaved to imagine that our lives cannot be freer or truer than they are. Forgive us. But more than that, set us free. Bring to our lives the ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds that your Spirit uses to make us truly clean. Because we sense that there is a new sun rising. We see it. But we want more than feeling the rays of that new day. We want to live and dance and sing and play and pray and exist in that new day with you eternally. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.